0: Ven a JCPenney y termina tus compras navideñas con brillantes descuentos, como hasta 70% en joyería después del cupón. Además, tenemos velas, mantas suavecitas y más desde $7,99. Y miles de doorbusters en marcas como Adidas, Champion, Disney y Carters. Recoge tu pedido el mismo día. Es rápido y gratis. Estará listo en dos horas o menos, hasta las 3 p.m. Nochebuena. JCPenney, celebraciones que valen la pena. Ofertas válidas hasta el 24 de diciembre en selección de estilos. Aplican exclusiones. Doorbusters se excluyen de los cupones. Detalles en la tienda jcp.com.
1: From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the Hill. I'm Thomas Gerald. Thanks for joining us this time. We are visited by Kai Hunter. Uh, she is a former U.S. Marine Corps combat veteran and has been working and looking at the issue of gun policy in this country through the work of the Brady Campaign, one of the uh, leading organizations that looks at uh, gun control uh, in this country. Uh, Kai, first of all, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: All right, so you're a Marine. Um, Always a Marine. Always a Marine. Uh, You've been around guns a
2: lot. I have. Yes.
1: One of the things we always hear on on the gun control issue, specifically when we talk about assault weapons, is that, you know, these are weapons of war that civilians should not possess these weapons. What is your viewpoint on there, having been somebody who's been in the service of the United States and and used these weapons?
2: Yeah, so... What's commonly referred to as assault weapons? These are weapons that are typically found on the AR-15 type, type platform, are uniquely deadly. Uh, these are weapons that were designed uh, for combat troops, uh, particularly in Vietnam, uh, to be light, to have light ammunition, to, and really to be effective at killing as many people as quickly and efficiently as possible. Uh, look, that that is great for combat. These, these are incredibly, incredibly effective combat weapons. Um, they are weapons that are uniquely destructive. And unfortunately, we see these exact same characteristics that make them attractive for combat soldiers, make them attractive for mass shooters, because they are light, they're reliable, they're easy to use, and they kill people quickly and effectively. And when we think about that, these aren't Weapons that are great for for hunting, I mean, they're going to destroy whatever you try to kill. They're not great for home defense because the trajectory of these weapons was designed to shoot through a helmet, which also means that they're going to shoot through walls. And you know, mm-hmm. if you want to hit your kid who might be asleep in the other room, like th- that's what the things you need to think about. And so there there isn't a great civilian application for them other than hey, I like to shoot them because they're fun.
1: The military has an arsenal of all different types mm-hmm. of weapons there are intercontinental ballistic missiles there are B1 bombers there mm-hmm. are stealth fighters there are you know Abrams vehicles, strikers how did this particular instrument of war wind up in the civilian market you can't go out and to the tank store and buy a tank
2: no yeah you know, or the yeah. helicopter store yeah, go buy a right. Cobra like I'd really like one yeah. sadly they won't let me have one um, Well, I think it really was a marketing ploy by the gun manufacturers. They were able to create what we see as the civilian version of the AR-15, and there's now just about every gun manufacturer has one of those. Um, They're cheap and easy to make. Um, and they're really easy to market them. If you look at how these guns are marketed, they're really marketed as being the the tough guy gun. You know, the idea that you're tactical, you're somehow cool. I mean, you see this, and you essentially almost see people cosplaying military around with these guns. And so they really they're they're a way for gun manufacturers to make money because they're they're cheap to produce and can be marketed to a pretty wide audience.
1: One of the things. Um that when you talk to uh, advocates of second amendment rights well, they will say in response to, to groups like yours is that the constitution doesn't say well this gun or that gun it says the right to bear arms as someone who's advocating for more gun control does the constitution fail you on that point because the constitution doesn't spell any of this out and it leaves itself open to wide interpretation hence all of these court cases and all of these rules. Yeah,
2: it it absolutely does. And I think if you look at the Heller decision in particular yeah. where the the late Justice Scalia even said that this decision does not mean the right to bear arms are absolute that there are there is plenty of room for restrictions on certain types of guns or who should own guns. I mm-hmm. think so we look at that interpretation and you know these aren't common use defense weapons mm-hmm. you know these are our weapons of war
1: I was actually in the Supreme Court chamber for those arguments that day and one of the things that Justice Scalia said that day was that you know he obviously was a constructionist mm-hmm. he was somebody who was known for going to the root uh, origins of our laws in fact the day they were arguing the Heller case Justice Scalia took it back even farther than that to the English Book of of Common Law and even though he was somebody who was always looked at as constructionist especially when it came to gun rights he made the point where you can't look at the second amendment and say they only meant muskets or they only meant well regulated militias, because somebody who wanted to protect their home shouldn't have to reach into their night table pull out a musket and gunpowder and then load a ball into a the pistol the likes of which may be taken Alexander Hamilton's life are there ways that modern weapons in your opinion could be possessed and owned and used by civilians but yet alter those weapons in such a way that they do not have the abilities that you spelled out in describing specifically the AR-15 originally.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it's two pronged. One is altering the weapons, um, as well as doing things like restricting high capacity magazines. I mean, that's a huge when we look at some of the the issues we've had. Talk we've to me about that. Uh,
1: I, I want to uh, pump the brakes on that right now, because that always does come up. And it came up in Virginia when mm-hmm. the assault weapon ban went to that Senate committee it was was the issue of the magazines. So for the uninitiated, uh, uninitiated, he tried to say, what is a magazine? We're so, not talking about something that comes in the mail.
2: No, a magazine is essentially the thing that holds the bullets that go into the guts. Clip, Ammunition is that, clip, yeah, right. um, yes, often referred to as clips, magazines. It holds the bullets.
1: So how much? How and, much would that hold in the military version?
2: And so it depends. I mean, we can have larger. We can have drums that that yeah, right. it can be be fed into. Mm-hmm. But um, there are thirty round magazines that are very common. But again, if you think about what the purpose of these in the military is, it's to be able to be effective and efficient because your most vulnerable time is when you're stopping to reload.
1: Okay, the next part of the vocabulary debate comes over when we hear about this, not only about the high-capacity magazines, but automatic, semi-automatic. Tackle that for me. What's what's the difference between an automatic weapon and a semi-automatic weapon? Are you able to pull the trigger and have it fire... So the, the simplest
2: way to describe the difference is that an automatic weapon, you hold the trigger down and it just continues to fire as long as you hold the trigger down. A semi-automatic weapon is going to shoot one bullet per trigger pull, which means that as fast as you can move your finger is how fast you're going to get bullets to come out of that gun. Things like bump stocks allow for a simulation of a automatic weapon by a semi-automatic weapon because it essentially is going to recock the gun each time just based on recoil so you can treat it the same way as you treat an automatic weapon
1: when you look at say a magazine for a military weapon versus one that uh is intended for the civilian market how many rounds would be appropriate in your view i mean i i I know you'd rather not see those weapons but uh at, at all but what do people commonly referred to as a high-capacity magazine uh, in the civilian market
2: so in the civilian market they're referred to as either over 10 rounds or over 12 rounds depending mm-hmm. on the the state the virginia um, law that you reference would have been 12 rounds for that mm-hmm. and and that's seen as a sort of general sporting number that is that is fine yeah. um, but we know that limiting the size of magazines saves lives if we look at the case of the um, shooting of gabby giffords the civilians were able to take her da- take the shooter down mm-hmm. because he stopped to change magazines. It's uh, similar that you have in many of the school shootings. Um, the Waffle House shooting was another example, that they were able to take the shooter down because he stopped to change magazines, that's the time when they're vulnerable. And so 10, you can still go have fun, shoot that gun at your range as much as you want, but it does provide again another life-saving opportunity when you come to these you know, these mm-hmm. tragic events.
1: We're talking about gun control in the On the Hill podcast from the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. The murder of Robert Wan, one of the most puzzling and gripping cases in the D.C. area. I'm Paul Wagner. Join me as I take a closer look at the mystery on Swan Street in a Fox 5 podcast available on Google Play, iTunes, and Spotify. This is the On the Hill podcast. Tom Fitzgerald here with you. Kai Hunter is our guest this time. She's a former U.S. Marine Corps combat veteran and a member of the Brady campaign campaign. Um, which looks and advocates for gun control across the country. Talk to me a little bit about your career. Uh, you're from California, yep, Northern California. I
2: grew up in, in Northern California, but I actually shot guns a lot when I was a kid. Um, Talk to me
1: about that because yeah. I think when a lot of people, and you're from the San Francisco area.
2: Yes, I am. They don't they don't think about us as gun people. Not the <laughs> place
1: normally associated with uh, you know uh, combat veteran uh, mar- Marines. But what was, what was your life like growing up in, in Northern California? Was this a part of your own life?
2: So I have incredibly, incredibly fond memories of going and skeet shooting and sporting clay shooting with my, my father. And, uh, in fact, I did it so much and was so excited about it in eighth grade, I was named most likely to be Annie Oakley in the next wild west show. So, (laughs) so this, you know, guns, guns were a thing I grew up with. Um, hunting was a big part of our, our family. Like my father hosted these annual duck lunches that would go and he'd cook up everything, you know, ducks and pheasants that he'd gone out to go hunt but there was never this belief that like guns were somehow some come and take it from my cold dead hand thing there was a huge sense of responsibility around them they were all locked up and stored safely Uh, there was a huge discussion about the fact that these are tools of life and death and that they are that is what they are designed for uh, then I went on and, and joined the Marine Corps as an adult after college. And again, gun culture in the military is taken very seriously. You At officer candidate school, you spend 10 weeks walking around with your M-16, learning everything about it, taking it apart, putting it back together again, cleaning it, You know, everything like that before you're ever allowed to fire a live round. And you spend a lot of time learning about the... Responsibility that comes from having such an intimate relationship with a tool of life and death And that's really what drove me into the gun violence prevention movement was the fact that I grew up in a a culture that Used guns as tools Mm -hmm. and sporting activities yet had a large value on them on life and death as well as a career that did
1: but when you hear people who Say they are protective of the second amendment one of the things they will say is that that the constitution says that the military should not have its hands on all the guns but uh, is is there validity to that or or is that you know somewhat colored in in your view because you had this experience as being someone who was in the united states military in service to the country when you hear maybe someone who's a civilian say well you know the constitution doesn't say that it just doesn't say only the military gets guns. It says we have a, a right to bear arms.
2: It it does say we have a right to bear arms, but I think we also need to look at the the evolution of this country in the in the meantime. I mean, we, as you had mentioned earlier in this conversation, you know, the military also has tanks and bombers and fighters that civilians just aren't going to have their hands on. And so I think there's this bit of a, it's become just a parroted talking point without mm-hmm. actually really thinking about what that means with regards to... The military not having all the guns or the, or the right to bear arms we need to have a real meaningful conversation about what it would actually mean if we were to try to go up against the military and how how that would actually look like it seems a, it's it, for me it's always come across as this very naive mm. talking point point. and also what i find interesting about it is that there's the same folks who often use that have a little bit of this like well, we also want to respect the troops well mm. You want to respect us, but you also want to fight against us? Like, let's have some of these meaningful conversations.
1: I met Jim Brady and Sarah Brady uh, in Trenton, New Jersey, years ago when they had come to the state uh, around about the time that the state of New Jersey had passed an assault weapons ban. Um, And I think back on that now, probably more than 25 years ago, the Brady campaign continues to fight this fight. But the NRA um, not only appears stronger uh they appear to be uh more omnipresent on the political scene than they ever were even going back 25 years so if you believe you're right on the facts and right on the gun control issue why hasn't your side made more progress on this issue and this fight is still being fought
2: well i think when you look at the nra what's uh important to look at is really how they're funded and what, who they're representing, which isn't the American people or even the average gun owner. You know, it really is the interests of the industry. They are funded by the industry. And what they are, are doing is making it easier to sell guns so the gun industry gets profit. So they're able to become become richer. I mean, I think if you look at the NRA, they've been very dominant in the political space and they speak for a minority view.
1: When I was a kid, they were primarily my uncle was a member. They're prim- primarily viewed as a safety organization. Yeah, they, they, that's what like they the started. AAA when of, I was a when yeah. I
2: was a kid, it was the same way.
1: Um, but that's that's changed. They still have a, a significant safety program. However, when you think of the NRA in 2020, you think about uh, gun rights advocacy, not you know their, their their safety program as much. Has Brady had to change? how it does its role in response to that because certainly nra changed. has brady changed
2: well i think one of the ways we've we've changed is we actually speak for the voice of the people which is more if you look at polling of the american people over 90 percent of americans including gun owners support things like universal background checks those who don't are this extreme fringe. You know, over three quarters of Americans uh, support extreme risk protective orders. Over two thirds of Americans, again, in, sub- including two thirds of gun owners who voted for Trump, support an assault weapons ban. So we really focus on now, not just th- talking about guns and gun violence prevention, but fighting for our democracy and getting big money out of politics because that's what has really been the stumbling block here, not what the American people actually want.
1: When you look at the Commonwealth of Virginia, and the Democrats have been able to kind of move a, a whole host of um, gun bills through, even though the assault weapons ban didn't did, was not successful, are are we seeing an example of how this issue could move nationally if the Democrats were able to get control of both houses? Of Congress with a Democratic president, potentially?
2: I I think absolutely. And I think what you're showing is this is actually an American issue, not just a Democrat or or Republican issue. Like it absolutely shouldn't be a partisan issue if you look again at what the American people want. Uh, 2018 was the beginning of the bellwether with the House if you look at a lot of the new freshmen who came into the house in 2018 there were dozens of them who who beat these long-standing nra-backed candidates Mm -hmm. like dana Rohrbacher, who voted against the original brady bill got voted out by a gun violence prevention champion and so it just shows how much the american people actually believe in this And and I think that it's it's what we've seen in Virginia is a portent. And it's not just Virginia that we're seeing this. You know, we're seeing it in Arizona and Nevada and even Texas um, with regards to state level legislatures wanting to keep their citizens safer.
1: So you're a Marine who grew up in northern California skeet shooting.
2: Yep. I'm a unicorn. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Tell me about that journey from the Marine Corps to the to the front lines of the gun debate here yep. domestically and politically what, was there an incident was there a moment was there a realization that you went from that to this or is that something that you had possessed within you the entire time a concern about this issue?
2: I I think the concern had been there for a long time but there was definitely a catalyzing moment that said I had to do more and that was the Vegas massacre Um, And there was really two main things about that that uh, catalyzed this for me. Um, I was working in San Diego at the time at University of San Diego, working with a group of women peacemakers. And one of the women who was over from Afghanistan and she had been negotiating with the Taliban. She had been the first woman named into the Afghan government. Mm -hmm. And she was in San Diego with her daughter when the Vegas shooting happened. And we were sitting outside talking about her life. And she said, you know what? I want to go back to Afghanistan because I don't want my daughter anywhere near this country if something like this can happen. And so that's a very stark realization that here's a woman who feels safer in Afghanistan than she does in America. And Afgh- there's a, there was an active war going on there. And then the next is that if you look at the, the carnage from Afghanistan, it was or from Vegas, it was virtually the same as the marine casualties in uh, Fallujah, or second time in Fallujah. And after that, we virtually ceased combat operations because we had to figure out why so many Americans died because that was unacceptable. And again, this is a war and we're saying this loss of American life is unacceptable. We've got to figure out how to change what we are doing to ensure that this never happens again. And the response after Vegas, where these were Americans who were just going to a concert was, well, there's nothing we can do about it. We can't change. It's too soon to talk about it. It's too soon to try to make any changes. And the complete opposite response is here. It's like, if we're worried about this level of death in combat, but we don't seem worried about it here at home, there's absolutely something more we need to do.
1: Is there an obstacle that you face on your side that has nothing to do with the NRA and that is complacency. Uh, when When I look back and I think about the response to Las Vegas, yes, it was tragic and awful. I think about the Pulse nightclub shooting. It was tragic and awful. Here in the city we're sitting in right now, 13 people dead, the Washington Navy Yard, I covered the Virginia Tech Massacre. You're looking at more than 30 dead there. But the one that sticks with me to this day is Sandy Hook. Mm-hmm. And over the number of years, we've had parents of some of the Sandy Hook victims uh, that we've, we've spoken to. It, it seemed to a lot of folks that if things did not change after Sandy Hook, that they were not going to. And to this day, President Obama still says that was one of the hardest days of, of, of his presidency. Are we still locked in a belief that if you can walk into a school and kill kindergartners in this country and nothing's going to change, that nothing is going to change?
2: Well, we're starting to actually see change. It's way too late because there's been, you know, if you look at since Sandy Hook, how many people have died? If you think about there's, you know, almost 40,000 people every year who die by gun violence in this country. And Sandy Hook was what almost eight years ago. I mean, that's an insane number of people but we are starting to to see change i think a big part is that there was a helplessness for too long but we're that is changing that is overcoming and that's really important for us to to keep in mind
1: there's some parallels here in, in another issue um which something like abortion where pro-life and pro-choice forces have been you know at each other's throats for nearly half a century in, the, in this country right now is the solution to this problem that that you seek include the NRA? Is there I, is there a can you do this without some kind of peace being brokered between two sides? Because if not, it seems like both of you are doomed to repeat the same cycle over and over again.
2: So it, it is why we very squarely call this gun violence prevention, not gun control necessarily. Right. You know, that this isn't about, I'm, I'm a gun owner. I've had been around guns my entire life. Right. So is Gabby Giffords. So is Gabby Giffords. Yeah. And and so what's, in, what's important is that there are ways in which we can, as gun owners, be a bigger part of the solution, both from a policy perspective, but also from the way in which we act in our daily lives and the way we interact with guns. I mean, there's way too cavalier an attitude in this country about the fact that just more guns are going to keep us safer and where that we want them to be the first level of protection. They're usually the first level of risk and we need to start having those open conversations um, and we need to talk about things like ending family fire and having safe storage and be the leaders in this movement as gun owners.
1: Do you ever have an opportunity to actively in, in, engage um Either the nra or or second amendment supporters or people who don't agree don't agree with maybe some of the policies that your group supports
2: absolutely quite a bit um i would love to directly engage the nra more so please call me up i'm here to talk but with second amendment activists absolutely and i think it's when you sit down and especially if when i sit down as a marine as a gun owner as been something who's been around guns for you know over 30 years of her her life like actively using them, you find out we have a lot more in common. We want the same things. We want our kids to grow up in a happy, safe environment. We want to be able to go to school and to go to church or mosques or synagogues or concerts and be safe. So if we come at it from a position that we want safe, healthy communities, we can get to much more solutions in the same uh, together.
1: I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us about a a very important issue that is not going to be going away anytime soon. So we invite you back uh, as we continue to cover this, uh, both uh, on the podcast here and on the television
2: program. Absolutely. Thank you so much.
1: Kai Hunter is a former U.S. Marine Corps combat veteran and uh, currently is with the Brady campaign. Um, And we thank you for joining us on the Hill this time. Thank you. We thank you as well, always, for uh, joining us on this podcast. I'm Tom Fitzgerald from the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. You've been on the Hill.
0: Ven a JCPenney y termina tus compras navideñas con brillantes descuentos como hasta 70% en joyería después del cupón. Además, tenemos velas, mantas suavecitas y más desde 799 dollars 99 y miles de doorbusters en marcas como Adidas, Champion, Disney y Carter's. Recoge tu pedido el mismo día. Es rápido y gratis. Estará listo en dos horas o menos hasta las 3 p.m. en Nochebuena. JCPenney. Celebraciones que valen la pena. Ofertas válidas hasta el 24 de diciembre en selección de estilos. Aplican exclusiones. Doorbusters se excluyendo de los cupones. Detalles en la tienda jcp.com.